entitled my message, Child, Not Orphan. And I want to look at a, quite a difficult passage of scripture. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 13. Now, I have printed in your bulletins um, the NIV version, and uh, I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. So I'm reading Hebrews 12, 7 to 13, and that's going to be the text for our sermon this morning. We'll get to it eventually, but let me read to you. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Now, no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there'll be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. I'm going to unpack a little bit the scripture, but before we get to that, it is very important we know the context of what the apostle to the Hebrews is, is speaking from. So I hope you will allow me and indulge with me to go back to the context. Because if we miss the context and we apply the scripture without the context, it can be quite a painful thing to read that suffering is God's tool for discipline. So I want to take you back to the context, and we, in order to look at the context, we've got to go way back to Hebrews chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles with me, you're going to journey with me for this next 10 minutes or so, just looking at context. And then if you are not bothered about context, go to sleep, I'll wake you up. <laughs> so Hebrews 10 and we go to Hebrews 10, verse 32, and that's where the context of this passage begins. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you own was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. The context of this passage of scripture is about persecution. Christian persecution. Now as we read some of these things he's talking about, some really maybe don't apply to us. But it sure applies to our brothers and sisters around the world. But we see it doesn't apply to us when we think of the situation that's going on with Marcus down south. It definitely applies to some of them who are trying to get out 
of the situations they are in and come free to worship the Lord the way he has called them to. So this is real in quite many people's lives. Public ridicule because you believe in Jesus. Beaten. Thrown in jail. Possessions being taken away. All because you believe in Jesus. So this was what they were going through as the author of Hebrews tries to encourage them. He is first of all acknowledging their pain. He's not minimizing it. He's acknowledging it. He says, I know you've gone through some very terrible and trying times. Once he does that, he also recognizes that there is discouragement that has crept in. He moves on to say in verse 35 of chapter 10, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. So recognizing that they were going through prolonged suffering, prolonged pain, and we know prolonged suffering and pain brings about discouragement, and discouragement will lead to despair. And when you're in that place of discouragement and despair, it's difficult to lean and continue to lean on God. And recognizing that, he is speaking an encouraging word to them. He said, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel right now. Remember that it is for your best interest to hold on to God. The reward is coming. Hold on to him. Then he goes on to begin. First he recognizes their pain and their persecution. Then he encourages them not to give up. And now he begins to connect them in chapter 11 to the giants of the faith. So he begins from chapter 11, and you know chapter 11 very well. You see the hall of fame of all those who walked with God and were victorious. And he goes one by one, encouraging them about the great giants, the fathers and mothers of their faith and our faith, encouraging them about all this. And then he gets to verse 35 of chapter 11. And he says, others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, their backs were cut open with whips. And he goes on to talk about the pain that those great men and women of God were going through. Basically what he's doing is, he's connecting their pain with the pain of the giants of the faith. And saying to them, welcome to the hall of fame. After he connects them to the giants of the faith, then he takes them to the greatest example of all. Jesus Christ, who lived his life perfectly as a son of God in the midst of suffering. And so he goes on to chapter 12, and this is how chapter 12 begins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. So he's telling them, you have become weighty. You have slowed down in your faith. He's recognizing that this weight of suffering that has been prolonged in their lives has allowed weight to set in in their walk with God. And he says, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. I like the way he puts it. He's not throwing stones at them. He's not taking a big fat concordance and bashing them on their head. 
He's saying, I know when you are so discouraged, when you're so despondent, when you're so despaired, I know what it's like that it's so easy for sin to latch on and make your life of Christ even more burdensome. He says, let's strip it away. Let's get lighter in this race we've set before us. Then he says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. He recognizes their pain, and then he encourages them to not get despondent, not to give up, not to throw in the towel. And then he links them to the great giants of faith and says, welcome to the hall of fame. And then he connects them to the greatest example of all. And he says, look to Jesus. As you're going through this, look to Jesus. He set a great example for us. Then we come to this passage that we have read. Let me make a couple of points before we go into this passage this morning. Firstly, you must know that this passage is not talking about suffering. It's not saying to us that God is the source of our suffering. That is very important. Because if you look at the context, and that's why I've taken you to the context, the context is their suffering was because of persecution. It was because of their faith in Christ that they were going through this suffering. So the context of this passage of scripture is not God. God is not the source of suffering. I have heard so many times preachers using this scripture to encourage us when we are going through sickness or tragedy as if that is from God and saying, look, God uses sickness to train us. No, he does not. He definitely does not. Sickness does not come from God. That's why I'm committed to praying for the sick. No matter what, this is what I'm going to do. And I've said this so often. In my tombstone, you can write, if there ever is a tombstone, right there. At least he gave it a shot. Because I'm going to keep on praying for all this. If you tell me you are sick, you're in trouble. Because I will put you in my prayer list and I'll pray. If you say, no, 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 this is a gift from God for me to be trained, I'll still pray. Sickness, disease, it's not from God. That's why we pray for one another and uphold each other. What he's talking about here is the persecution and the difficulty it is to celebrate a life with God and the pressure that comes with it. That's very important for me to say that. If we say sickness is from God, I, I find that one of the most offensive things theology that's around because I'm a father and I'd say this and I know fathers and mothers sitting here you will say the same thing if you could take a sickness out of your child and put it on yourself you would do it I would when I see my kids pain I would rather take it upon myself and if I a wicked father thinks like that about my children how much more would our heavenly father want to take it upon himself rather than you suffer. And he did. 
on the cross 2,000 years ago. By his stripes, we are healed. So I want to say this. What I'm going through with you in this next few passages of scripture, I want to make it very clear. Sickness, tragedy, the source is not from God. When we are in the midst of that, we can take courage with these verses that we are about to go through. So what he begins to say when he's talking to them who is suffering, and in the midst of prolonged suffering, they have started to get discouraged and started disengaging from God and further away from God. He is saying to them this, be a child, be a child. He's inviting them to consider their life of faith in the family of God. He said, you know what? When you are in God's family business, we tend to get persecuted. It seems to be normal. And that's why he's gone through the whole list of those who went through that. And then Jesus himself. So let's go through one by one. And I want to talk to you about how, because I'm going to look at the orphan and the child mentality as we go through this verse by verse very quickly. And I hope as I go through this verse by verse, I hope it'll be a checklist for you and me because it's so easy for us to slip into an orphan mindset when we are actually children of God. So as we look at this, I'm inviting you to use this as a checklist and go through this with me for our sakes. Hebrews 12 verse 7 says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Now, I think it's unfortunate that the translators have chosen the word discipline. And in fact, King James used the word chastening. The word discipline and chastening today have very negative connotations to it. But the Greek word is actually paideia. And the word paideia means tutorage, education, or training. I love training. I love education. If I could be a full-time student for the rest of my life, I would love it. You know, my wife has made me promise I will never go back to study again. After two master's degrees, she says, enough is enough. Paideia means tutoring, means training. So really, the passage should read, as you endure this divine training, remember that God is treating you as his children. So he's suggesting in the midst of the suffering they are going through, take time to go and sit on daddy's knees. He's got some secrets to teach you and train you how those giants of the faith was, were victorious even in spite of pain and suffering. Take time to sit on daddy's knees. Let him explain and, and train you to be like Jesus and how he was victorious in the midst of his suffering. And so it was an invitation to them, come, go to daddy, sit at his feet, let him train you to be victorious in the midst of what you're going through. I put here, an orphan doesn't recognize fatherly training, but a child embraces the experience. Verse 8, if God doesn't discipline you, shall we use the word training? If God doesn't train you as he does all his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Again, I must go to the Greek. 
Illegitimate is the Greek word nothos. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And the word nothos, when used in ancient Greek literature, is to identify the legitimacy of a, a child, whether they are citizens or not. So to be a Greek citizen, you needed to have two parents. Both parents must, must be Greek. Otherwise, you cannot be a Greek citizen. And they would use the word nothos, illegitimate in the sense of your legal standing. And um, the TDNT says, unable to make an accredited claim to sonship of God. And so what he is saying is, if you don't want to be trained by God, your father, you're saying, you're not really my father. Because a child would enjoy being trained by God the Father. So I put here, an orphan doesn't realize their legal entitlement. You are entitled to your father's training. A child knows he or she is family. A child knows he or she belongs. A child knows that you can go home. You don't have to ask permission to enter your own house. You don't have to ask permission to sit on your father's couch. You don't have to ask permission to go into the pantry and help yourself. My children never asked for permission. Why? They don't have to. They belong. Do you know that your father is king? If he is king, you're a prince. All of you. Legal standing to be royal. Verse 9. Since we respected our earthly fathers who trained us, shouldn't we submit even more to the training of the father of our spirits and live forever? You know, when, I, when I'm working with um, blended families, it's not uncommon for me to hear a stepson in a heated time of conversations in the room will turn around to the stepfather and say, you're not my father, don't tell me what to do. Sometimes we don't say that, but we sure think that when we are with God. Don't tell me what to do. Do you do that? Note how he calls God the father of spirits. You know why? Because when daddy is training us, he does deep work within us. He speaks into our spirit. He refreshes our spirit. He enriches our spirit. He's a father of spirits. And then he says, when that work is being done, you truly live. In God's training, you live. You truly experience life. So I said this. And often sees submission as life-threatening. But a child sees submission as life-giving. And often we'll see submitting to God as life-threatening. But a child would see submission to God as life-giving. Verse 10. For our earthly fathers disciplined, uh, trained us for a few years, doing the best they knew. But God's training is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. And often, spirit is always suspicious. What are you up to now, God? Why is this happening to me, God? You know, and the orphan spirit kind of 
is suspicious that God always wants to do his own thing, his own way. But a child knows that the father has only their best interest in his heart. And often sees God's intentions as self-serving. But a child sees God as always acting on their best interest. Finally, verse 11. No training is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And often seeks short-term pleasure. But a child endures what they're going through, trusting God's got a plan. His plan is perfect. And it's going to be for my best. And certainly, there's going to be a harvest for me. So be a child. Don't be an orphan. Your Heavenly Father wants to train you. Your Heavenly Father wants you to know that you are part of His family. Your Heavenly Father wants you to submit to His parenting so you can truly enjoy life He has for you. Your Heavenly Father has only your best interest in His heart. Your Heavenly Father has a long-term plan for you that you will bear much fruit and prosper in him. So let me close with his final verses in verse 12 and 13. So take a new grip with your tired hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but come strong. He's taken a long journey to encourage them and come to this place. He's recognized their pain. And this morning, I want to recognize pain in this room. I want to recognize suffering in this room. And I want to recognize that we've all gone through very challenging life. But as he recognized that, he encourages them. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on this confident trust that you have in God. He'll come through. He'll come through. He'll come through. Then he takes them and says, didn't he come through for them? Those great men and women of faith that we boast about and we remind each other about, didn't he come through for them? And then didn't he come through for our Savior, the precious one we call our champion of our faith? Didn't he come through for him? He'll come through for us. And then he finally talks to us. Come on. Let's be children. Let's enter into God's family business and see him cause us to thrive. And he ends with these two verses. And I know that the context of this passage is suffering that's caused by persecution. But as I look at these two verses, I've called it a child's template when suffering. Because it can be the template for whatever suffering you're going through. And this is what he encourages us to do. Raise those hands in thanksgiving. For the Hebrew, worship was always with raised hands. If your hands were down, you were sad, you were discouraged, you were despondent. I remember the big arguments that used to go on in church on whether you can raise your hands or you can't raise your hands 
Well, I tell you, if you are in the temple, you'd have to raise your hands. If you are in the synagogue, you'll have to raise your hands. Because the hands hanging down was the hands that was not thankful to God. So when you see me raising my hands, don't sack me. Encourage me. But what is he saying? Raise your hands. Why? In everything that you do, however tired that life is, however painful your life has grown, however struggle that you have within you, raise those hands in thanksgiving. Because as you raise your hands, your head gets lifted as well. Your heart is uplifted as well. Your eyes are focused on him. Raise your hands in thanksgiving. Then he says, strengthen those knees. We've always seen knees as prayer. Strengthen those knees in prayer. Keep praying. Even if those words won't come out anymore, let the tears be the tears of prayer. Even if the tears have dried up and you can't cry anymore, let the groans be the groans of prayer. But strengthen those knees in prayer. And then he says, clear the path so you don't trip. And I look at the path as faulty ideas of God. You know, when, when you think that God is not good anymore, that's going to trip you in your journey. Clear those paths. Anything that takes you away from God is not worth having. Clear it away. Even if the greatest theologians in the world have told you that's theology, if it is burdensome for you and it's you taking you, you away from God, throw it away. It's not worth. Clear the path, he says, so that you don't trip. And then he says, keep walking. Keep walking. However slower the pace goes, just keep walking. Because he's saying, when you keep doing that, the weak areas of your life, the lame areas of your life will become whole. 